Hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to let you know that these podcasts are now available on Stitcher Radio. I'm not sure how many of you um, actually use Stitcher Radio at the moment, but I understand that it's um, growing as a portal for podcasts, so I just wanted to let you know that we're on there now. Um, So today's podcast is really exciting for two reasons, really. Firstly, because it is on one of my favorite topics to discuss and teach about, and secondly, because I'm joined by two guests, both of whom have been on this podcast before. So they are Dr. Roseanne Jepson, who is a lecturer in internal medicine and is our most frequent guest on this podcast series. So thanks, Roseanne, very much for that. And we're also joined by Don Barfield, who's a lecturer in emergency and critical care. Now, he's only made one appearance on this podcast series before, but as he pointed out to me before we started, that's because I haven't invited him again, so I will do uh, again in the future. Um, The other thing I wanted to say is that we were also going to be joined by Nicola Calendra, who's a lecturer in small animal surgery, but unfortunately she was not able to make it today. Um, She has, however, sent me some comments that I will read out at the appropriate times. And um, finally, just to say that because of the nature of the topic that we're talking about today, there are a load of things that we're going to cover and there's lots of discussion. And um, even though we'll try and keep it, you know, succinct, um, I think this is going to end up being too much material for one podcast. So we've decided to basically split the topic into two podcasts and uh, we will release part one and then release part two a few weeks down the line. Um, So today we're going to talk about urethral obstruction in male cats, otherwise known as block cats. And I wanted to start by asking you, Roseanne, please, if you could please tell us what FLUTD is and how, if at all, it has anything to do with block cats. Thanks, Shailen. Um, So FLUTD, which stands for Feline Lower Urinary Tract Disease, um, actually the term FLUTD would encompass a large number of conditions because it really just is telling us that we're dealing with a condition relating to, as it says, the feline lower urinary tract. Um, And I think probably more specifically what we're referring to in this podcast is going to be idiopathic feline lower urinary tract disease or um, perhaps feline interstitial cystitis, or FIC. Um, so there's a lot of confusing terminology that goes on You see my there. face cringe as you're saying that. Really, <laughs> Shailen? <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> okay, um, and so so I guess um, what we're really thinking about are um, cats that present to us with typical signs relating to the lower urinary tract, and I know that we're going to go on to discuss some of the specific terminology. Um, but we get worried, particularly in male cats, because some of these cats can come in not just demonstrating signs um, relating to the lower urinary tract, but signs that they're not actually able to um, pass urine, so they've essentially become obstructed. And there are a number of reasons why cats can become obstructed. Um, Some of them it's just urethral spasm, so there's nothing actually physically going on there. Um, Then we have another subset of cats which perhaps have some kind of mucoid plug or something that's causing an obstruction, but it's not a sort of permanent feature as such. And then we have another category of cats which actually present to us with something um, uh, solid, so a urethral if or something actually causing um, a physical obstruction as such. So... Um, is it, so it's fair to say that block cats that we're talking about today yeah. are a subset of cats that have FLUTD, but they're not all cats with FLUTD are the cats that we're talking about today? Absolutely, okay. yes. <laughs> did you understand that, Doc? I did, I did. 
<laughs> Call me a good check. Because um, the other term that I think we used to use, right, was was it FUS? Does that does that ring any bells back in the day? No. So she's a little bit younger than us. <laughs> she's looking at us going, what? It's okay. You've never even heard of it. It's fine. We used to call it that, right? Yeah. Back in the back in the many days ago. Okay. Anyway, so we no longer use the term FUS. The fact that you Rosanne haven't heard of it is endorsement of the fact that we don't use it anymore. (laughs) So we'll just forget about it. It's fine. Um, And I guess you've already kind of said this already, but if you don't mind reiterating, in terms of urethral obstruction, which are the cats that are classically affected? And just remind us again about in terms of the causes of the obstruction. Can we say these are the top two causes, for example? Um, So in terms of which cats are we dealing with, it tends to be um, a younger feline population and we tend to be dealing with the male cats just because of um, physiologically the male urethra is much narrower than the female female urethra. Um, In terms of male entire versus castrated, then there's no real difference, doesn't make make any odds. Um, In terms of what's actually going to be causing the um, obstruction, then um, in the vast majority of cats, so I think it's over 60%, there will be some kind of um, mucoid plug-like material that's actually causing the obstruction when they come in. Um, uh, but at 30 to 40%, actually, there won't be anything physically present, and we think of it being a spasm, um, so a urethral spasm that's causing the obstruction. And then we have um, another group of cats, which I guess I would put somewhat separately, are those which actually have stones present when they come in. Okay, and um, <clears throat> in terms of the kind of evidence base for this, what causes the obstruction, there are... I'm um, just stretching my memory here, but there are some quite sizable studies reported by ClinPath Labs, is that right? Um, they've looked at the material that they've yeah, been Yeah, so there have been studies or? looking at... So when, when cats present with the um, mucoid plug, um, there's evidence that it, it tends to be composed of sort of, of serum-type proteins, so some albumin, um, some debris-type material, often with some crystals in there as well. So um, as a consequence, most likely of the sort of weeping nature of the bladder and the urethelium um, that sort of generated this material that then sort of congeals and causes an obstruction. <coughs> A mess, huh? Um, Dom, can you think of any blocked female cats that you've seen? I think, I think probably one. But not, what, not, what was she not blocked many. with, do you remember? It, it was a stone. So I suppose that a stone had got caught in the right place, or the wrong place, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, but not... <laughs> that's one in a while. Because we see, we see females that have lower urinary signs, right, but they don't, they're not typically obstructed. We're going to come on and talk about the signs in a minute. Um, but before we do, can, can well, both of you or either of you just explain, you can fight it out amongst yourselves. <laughs> Tom, why don't you go first? Um, if, if a cat cannot urinate, what are the pathological consequences of that? Um, I suppose the, uh, you know, the, the, the main thing or our main issue is this ability to excrete the, um, uh, the electrolyte potassium, which has sort of uh, devastating consequences on the, on the myocardium itself. And, and uh, you see sort of classic sort of changes of, uh, with the ECG, but also bradycardia, which can be sort of life-threatening. So I suppose it's, uh, that's the main sort of um, issue as far as sort of I'm concerned. The azotemia that will develop, um, although I'm sure Roseanne will beg to differ, in the acute setting is not necessarily 
the biggest sort of issue that we that we have. Why, why um, are you going to have to differ? Why? Well, I guess I guess I guess I would be saying um, I agree with Dom. Obviously, in the in the short term and the acute stages, the biggest thing that we need to deal with is the potassium because that's going to be life threatening. But I would say that for every second, minute, hour that the cat spends obstructed in terms of the kidney, then um, because of the back pressure that's created um, from having a, a post renal um, azotemia, then those those kidneys are not happy and they need to be de-obstructed as quickly as we can. Every nephron is sacred. Every nephron is sacred. If only Monty Pythons had that song instead of their other song, which I can't quite remember for this podcast. <laughs> You're not going to see it. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, there's a couple of things I wanted to say about all that. One was... Um, just to reiterate your point, so basically it's a lack of being able to excrete potassium that's the biggest issue, but obviously a lack of being able to excrete other things too, so yeah, abs- waste, abs- hydrogen absolutely. ions. And, and that probably contributes to the, uh, um, to the neurological dysfunction, I think, sometimes we, we see, see with these with these cats as well, because not everything can be attributed to the hyperkalemia that they, that they have. Yeah. Um, and, <clears throat> Roseanne, the, the other question I had for you was... Um, because one of the things when I do when I talk about and teach this is obviously this issue about the back pressure on the kidneys. And we tend to say, well, look, the azotemia is post-renal and it virtually always goes away within a couple of days, right? And we'll come back and talk about that in a bit more detail. How can we know and do we know what the consequences of being obstructed are to each individual cat in the long term? Is there any way we can answer that question or do we just have to sort of suck it up and say, well, there may have been some, but we can't really, we don't really know? We don't really know at the moment, Shailen. I think it's really difficult um, uh, to prognosticate for the individual cat in terms of their long-term risk factors if they've had um, multiple obstructive episodes during the young part of their life. One could imagine that that potentially is damaging to the nephrons and therefore maybe those are cats which ultimately um, mm. will be at risk of chronic kidney injury at, a, at an earlier time point. We, we just, don't, we just exactly. don't have any information about that, to be honest. So um, I don't think we can really say. I think we just need to know that every obstructed kidney is ideally going to be de-obstructed as quickly as we can. We'll come on, we'll come on to talk about that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so then the other thing I wanted to just to, to get, get over with, really, I guess, is the... Um, the kind of classical cluster of lower urinary tract signs, and those are dysuria, stranguria, hematuria, and polacuria. Now, what I tend to use those terms to mean is basically I tend to, to use dysuria to mean just kind of any abnormality in urination, and then stranguria kind of means straining to urinate. Hematuria obviously means blood in the urine, and polacuria means spotting urine. Um, so you're urinating little bits often, but I guess the hematuria and polacuria are non-controversial, I imagine. Um, how do you guys use dysuria and stranguria? Are you happy with my use of those terms, or are you a bit kind of like, I don't know? Uh, Shailen, I, th- I think the way that you've described them is what we typically um, will be using them as in veterinary medicine. I think the specific terminology as it applies to human medicine is slightly different, but I think for the vast majority of people out there, what you're describing, so dysuria being any difficulties urinating and stranguria being sort of straining to urinate, etc., that tends to be how they're used. I think in human medicine, actually, dysuria means painful urination, and stranguria means um, slow and painful urination. but but I think but but that's so, but I think I think you know most of us will just use the term dysuria to imply that a patient is having difficulties urinating. Okay. So we're kind of happy with yeah, that terminology, so. <clears throat> which then brings me on to the question of 
in your combined experiences, how many of these block cats do we see have one or all of this cluster of signs? So do you think it's pretty common? Is it pretty rare? What's your experiences? Um, as, as regard to the sort of history that they sort of yeah. come in with, yeah. I suppose it can be pretty varied, uh, I, I suppose, and some cats can have a, a short history of maybe straining to go to the toilet or palarchia for a couple of days and others just are found sort of acutely. And I suppose it probably partially depends on the owners and, and how cognizant they are of their cats' behaviours. And I'd imagine that indoor cats, they might know a bit more what's going on if they're scratching around in the litter tray or maybe slightly older cats if they're in a bit more more, whereas cats that go outside, maybe owners don't not, not appreciative of what's going on. So I suppose that, that probably uh, alters sort of things. Maybe the cat's just a bit quiet and they haven't seen it go to the toilet very often. I think that's So that's a good point. Take. So you're saying that even in the cases where there is no historical evidence of those signs being present, it may be that they just haven't been observed. Yeah. So yeah. The, the, the number that are not showing those signs may not be as great as maybe we think it might be. Yeah, because they're just not being observed. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the you know the cognizant owners of cats that have them maybe indoors, I think they're quite easily recognisable because you know they know they're going to the tray all the time and nothing's sort of happening or you know, hear them scratching all the time. Whereas if your cat goes outside, then unless your unless your cat you know urinates in your um, rose box or something like that, you know people not necessarily yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. people don't necessarily uh, I think are, are aware. That you know, and it just might be they're, they're quiet or, or maybe um, meowing, uncomfortable, um, but not necessarily see them urinate. Did you want to add anything about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, being a medic and seeing the more chronic cases, we we would typically see the cats that are coming in with recognisable clinical signs, and that's where Dom as an ECC um, team member is going to see a slightly different population. So the cats that come into us may well have had recurrent bouts of lower urinary tract signs in the past. Mm. Um, we probably tend to see a lower proportion of truly obstructed cats through the internal medicine service because if they're presenting truly obstructed they tend to come and see dom instead um so i think we would most of the cats that we see will have um obvious clinical signs because they've been recognized um cool i mean i i guess from my point of view i try and just propagate the idea that that fits in with what you said dom really was that we need to have a sort of pretty broad index of suspicion because i know i've you know people have rung up and said yeah the cat's just meows when i pick him up and he doesn't normally do that or you know he's walking funny and i think he's been hit by a car or these kinds of other things so there's a whole variety of um of potential signs and so we keep a broad index of suspicion um in terms of the management then of these cases again we're not just focusing on that today because i'm pretty sure we could do a whole hour on just about the management of block cats but um i wanted to kind of set the, the discussion in the context of a hypothetical but common scenario where you've got a large male cat that presents with moderate hypoperfusion, so moderate shock, and a medium to large rigid bladder and clinically significant hyperkalemia. So moderate hypoperfusion, classical bladder that doesn't confuse you, and um, significant hyperkalemia. So can you please explain, Dom, when you do a cardiovascular exam on that cat, given that it's got moderate shock, significant hyperkalemia, what sort of things are you going to be finding and then go on to explain, if we know, why these cats can be in shock. 
I think uh, okay, I'll, I'll try and uh, answer, <laughs> you, but at least at least you'll be able to answer if if I if I can't. So um, so I, I suppose that uh, the you know the effects of of hyperkalemia because I suppose we can assume that they're cats. Um, uh, have maybe potentially some hyperkalemia if they haven't been able to urinate sort of for, for a while, and that might be contributing to um, a decrease of the cardiac output. Um, as also, um, if they haven't been um, you know, you know, drinking or being able to, to perfuse their kidneys very well, probably they're, they're relatively hypovolemic as, as well. I suppose that's my sort of uh, sort of take on on it per se. I don't know what your no, I agree. Yeah. It's been one of those conundrums for the last fifteen years. Rosanna, if you've got anything to add, please do because because um, it's a question that comes up all the time. Right? We're going to go on and talk about the management of this cat and that we see a lot of them and the sickest ones are sort of moderately to severely hypoperfused. Mm-hmm. The question that follows is, what are the mechanisms of that? And that becomes a little bit like, eh. So I, I'm, I'm very much like, I don't, I don't know that we know for sure. And I, I think the acidemia might have a role in this. The hyperkalemia might have a role in this. As you say, there may be some effects of lack of fluid intake, I guess. Um, but often they're not being that sick for that long. So I, I, don't, know, I don't know that we know. So it's a bit of an unfair question in some respects. Yeah. But... Um, I and saw that in the show notes, and I thought, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because we've got it, because we're going to go and talk about the management, and I think if we're going to explain how we we think people should be managing these cases, the fact that they are hyperperfused is something that we need to, yeah. to stress, right? So, um, do could you just describe what this cat might look like? This very sick block cat, as as in, as in how they, how they, how they present here, and what will you find in your major body system exams? Just so I suppose that neurologically, they're, they're probably, uh, you know, I know that neuro, neurologists don't like the word depressed, but they're probably more like <laughs> depressed to, to sort of obtunded, or they are responsive, but not necessarily. And they can be, um, or to, to, to relatively sort of conscious. I suppose they have a quite, quite a sort of spectrum of, of activity, um, as well as their, their heart rates can be sort of bradycardic. Um, so, you know, something less than 150 beats per minute, or even, even potentially sort of lower, but, um, uh, you know, shocky cats, as, as we know, can have bradycardia anyway, so that doesn't necessarily mean that they're hyperkalemic. Um, but I suppose their, their pulses should be weaker, or they normally are sort of weaker as, as well. Um, and I find that cats are often sort of tachypnic, and I don't know whether that's necessarily a painful sort of mm. process um, or uh, dealing with the acidemia, as you, as you said. So so um, I suppose a, a potential of all, all those sort of, sort of things. And uh, they should have some sort of um, prominent bladder. And, and uh, I think that, you know, maybe that's a, a good distinction to have. And always in the back of my mind, you know, if a cat presents with... Uh, um, you know, signs of going to the toilet sort of frequently. If you can feel a bladder, then, you know, it needs to be unobstructed. It doesn't matter necessarily what size it is because if you're straining to go to the toilet, you, you should, you know, animals with cystitis or people with cystitis, you know, they go to the toilet all the time, you urinate all the time, so there shouldn't be any residual volume in the, in the bladder. So I suppose that I think that might be a trap for young players sometimes that they think, well, the bladder's not massive, can't be blocked mm. um but um but they are i think okay cool i'll just um <clears throat> i guess uh, so to in summary then you've got a recumbent collapsed depressed to obtunded cat that is um bradycardic maybe more than you'd even expect for a shocky cat yeah uh, weak to absent pulses pallor um often tachypnic and either pain acidemia um and then on palpation you might have a well anything really from a small to large bladder that's typically rigid 
Um, I guess we should say, although I, you know, we don't see this very often at all, right, is where they obstruct and then they actually rupture their bladder. I mean, I think we don't even spend time talking about it because I think it's, it's pretty, unless you disagree, I think it's a pretty rare phenomenon. So, Yeah, um, no, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I don't think that I've seen a naturally occurring ruptured bladder that has been associated with a massive trauma. Yeah. And again, the other thing we should mention, of course, is, is pain. Um, and these cats will be painful, and we don't need to try and repeatedly demonstrate it, and we just need to give them plentiful analgesia. And I'll stop. No, no, <laughs> stop absolutely. About that. I think you should bear in mind, and, and definitely uh, with the person sitting to my, to my left, that analgesia needs to be appropriate. And uh, so if you hit these with non-steroidals, then uh, a, number of, a number of people are going to come after you, you know, for a number of reasons. So, so um, if you only have non-steroidals in your practice, don't give it anything unfortunately, but you should have something else in your practice. Yeah, I think nowadays it would be... Um, I mean, I, I suppose this would be the time when if you only had butorphanol, we might even use butorphanol yeah, as yeah, an analgesic, yeah. right? But yeah. not that we do much. Um, and then again, for you know, for time reasons, we can't... That's why I didn't present you all the detail in, in detail, because we can't dissect this one cat. Mm. But just in summary, if we could just run through highlights of the management of this shocky, hyperkalemic cat. But as I say, just kind of keep it relatively... Um, Oversight, that would be great. Okay. So I, I suppose the um, the rule of thumb, well, not the rule of thumb, that's, that's probably a wrong way of approach. They need fluids. Like that's, uh, I think we can we can all agree with that. They need fluids and probably quite a lot. And and uh, I know that um, definitely sort of trying to, to speak to, to students about this, and you know, clinical students on their rotations, they have this um, preconception that the intravascular space is finite. And if you give more fluids, it's going to go out through the kidneys and cause the, the bladder to rupture and something like that. Um, but obviously, you know, if you actually think about that, that doesn't make so much sense. <clears throat> As we said, they're relatively hypovolemic. We need to give fluids for a couple of reasons. A, improve their perfusion, but also it'll have a, a dilutional effect on the on the potassium levels that are running around in that intravascular space. Um, I'm not sure this is the right time to sort of say that, but as, as far as type of fluids, or you ask me about that? No, let's just it. chuck that in there and get, okay. it out, get it out of the way. So, so I suppose <laughs> that uh, as far as sort of fluids go, you know, isotonic crystal, Fluids uh, in the old school money, sort of uh, replacement fluids would be what we want to give. Um, so either 0.9% sodium chloride or Hartman's lactated ringers, compound sodium lactate, whatever floats your boat for, for that sort of stuff. So some sort of balanced uh, fluid is probably better. Um, there's not many double-blinded placebo-controlled trials done in, uh, in, um, in any form of veterinary medicine, but there was one done by uh, Ken Drobatz and his team at Penn looking at 0.9% sodium chloride and uh, lactated ringers um, in uh, resuscitating these uh, these cats and actually found out that the lactated ringers um, will uh, reduce their acidemia faster and not change their potassium level as composed of 0.9% sodium chloride. So I suppose you should sort of backtrack a bit and say, obviously, lactated ringers or all those um, uh, lactated or, um, fluids will have some potassium in them, about 5 millimoles per litre, um, but the dilutional effect will actually... Um, you know, not contribute to the to the uh, to the cat's potassium levels, um, and probably a better fluid to give. So, um, so it needs fluids, and and um, and that's the that's the important sort of thing. <coughs> so, resuscitative fluids, um, and you are, you are saying that um, we're not going to pop said kitty's bladder. 
Absolutely, yeah. 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 And actually, what do we mean by resuscitative fluids? We mean sort of, you know, we mean bolus therapy, right? Yeah, yeah, resuscitation. We, we, yeah you definitely give, uh, um, you know, a, a percentage of the circulating blood volume of the cat, maybe 10 mils, 20 mils per kilo, and reassess the patient sort of thing and, and, and go, go from there. I mean, obviously, like, the idea is that we want to try and unblock this cat. And, uh, and I think um, if it was going to be uh, early in my career, I'd have definitely anaesthetized them to do that. And so you want to make the animals as, as the cats rather, sorry, as stable as possible before you would do that. And I think fluids are, are very important in, in doing that, regardless of what the potassium is doing or anything like that. So unblocking the cat um, needs to be done in as safe a manner as possible. And we need to make the cat as stable as possible to, to, to do that. And uh, so giving fluids is, is the, you know, the, the first thing to, to do. And if we didn't have um, uh, any other fancy ways of looking at potassium or anything like that. Fluids, 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 and probably more fluids, you know, I suppose would be... Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think, again, we'll, we'll, um, we won't, you know... What, what I think we should do is to say to the listeners that if, after this podcast, there are things they want to explore with us in more detail, yeah. that we're all very willing and, and happy to discuss these. Because I think otherwise we'll... Unfortunately, I'd love to sit and talk about this for about three hours, but I think we're not going to get to. But um, So our take-home message from us is we resuscitate with fluids. You can use a balanced isotonic crystalloid solution. You can use normal, I'll stop calling it normal saline, 0.9% sodium chloride if you want to. Basically, bottom line is it doesn't really matter. Use one or the yeah. other, but use it properly. Yeah. And let's put a line under that. But if you want to get in touch with us and ask us more questions... We're happy to entertain them. Does that sound all right? Sounds, sounds good. Okay, so resuscitative fluids. Um, what am I going to do about this hyperkalemia that I think is a problem to the cat? So I, I suppose, you, you know, th- this, is, this is, I think, where it gets sort of uh, difficult and probably depending on what, um, what facilities you have to measure potassium sort of in your practice and whether you have an ECG and things like that. So there's definitely studies that are shown or we're all told classically that as the potassium levels sort of increase, um, then you'll get sort of spiking of your T waves, uh, you'll get a wide, uh, you know, disappearing of your P waves, widening of your QRS complex in sort of like a stepwise manner as you get more hypoclemic and then, you know, a complete atrial standstill and then asystole etc um, etc et but actually the studies that have now sort of shown at different levels of potassium even up to 10 you know millimoles per liter which is quite sort of extremely high can have a normal sinus rhythm and i suppose partly these are cats but partly it's also in a clinical situation so then we come into the idea as well maybe as we know that um in definitely in, in people hyperkalemia can have a normal sinus rhythm and go into ventricular fibrillation so maybe we should treat a number um, and mm. I think this is where I have, uh, um, I, I suppose that I would like to give some sort of fluids first because I think that, you know, I can definitely decrease the potassium with that. And then we can think about the other things that potentially might sort of decrease the potassium in, in, the, in the cat. So, uh, um, so I suppose that the, uh, the things that, that people sort of normally give um, would be maybe some insulin and dextrose or even consider... Um, I think like bicarbonate sort of as as well. Um, am I missing one off the top of my head? <coughs> no. Yes. Yeah, of course I am. What's the thing that doesn't lower potassium? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Calcium gluconate. Thank yeah, you. Uh, I just had a, a, um, a mental blank as I was looking out alpaca. Um, so <laughs> you uh, alpaca. <laughs> so uh, I'm wondering where we're recording this. <laughs> <laughs> How would it feel? So, um, so yeah, absolutely. So, so I suppose the, um, the the first thing that I would do is the first drug line that I would give would be calcium gluconate. Um, calcium gluconate is a, a, a common drug that most 
sort of vets have in practice, mm. and people they might have like calcium chloride. And I'm not sure whether calcium chloride exists in a large animal um, uh, framework, um, but calcium chloride, uh, if if that needs to be used, you need to make very sure that your uh, <coughs> venous access is, is, is good because otherwise um, the calcium dissociates from the chloride immediately and you can cause like bad sloughing and you know, you know worse things than doxorubicin and things like that. Uh, but anyway, the calcium gluconate will go, go in and, and uh, what that does is uh, um, sort of stabilize the membrane like if the myocardium to so change the threshold potential of that um, to sort of restore the balance. And that will probably last for about 20 to 40 minutes um, as you know, you should sort of have an ECG, and probably the P wave should appear, and a normal sort of sinus rhythm should should happen, sort of sort of uh, um, uh, in that time. And probably, to, if I was being honest, Shailen, I, I think that would be what I would give for the most part, and fluids, and hopefully make the cat more stable to go mm. the next step. So. The reason why is that when we start talking about insulin and glucose, I think you've added a level of complexity now to your situation. So not only are you worried about the cat's ability to uh, get rid of the potassium and and, uh, get rid of its acetemic and other sort of metabolites that it's got, you've now decided to give it a drug that's going to potentially make it hyperglycemic. Um, And unfortunately, I've definitely seen cats have seizure because they've been given insulin. And I I think that unless you, you know, if you're going to give insulin, you've got to monitor it. I know that the dose rate as well that's uh, reported in the textbooks is actually sort of quite high for mm. the amount of insulin to give. Um, and so I suppose that if I was going to give it, I'd, I'd probably give maybe one international unit of neutral insulin um, as a... Uh, um, as a total, as a total dose, dose. Yeah. yeah. As a total dose. Yeah. And then definitely... Um, chase it up with some dextrose um, and also uh, look at the cat's blood glucose. Keep an eye on it. And keep an eye okay, on so it. Let, let me, um, just, so basically we're saying resuscitative fluids, when you stress the hyperkalemia, if you think it's clinically significant, in a lot of cases that is calcium, intravenous calcium gluconate. It stabilizes the myocardium. The risk benefit is very much in favor of benefit. I use it pretty liberally, to be honest, and yeah. a lot of block cats get it whatever their situation. And you can repeat it, sorry. And you can repeat it, absolutely. Um, Insulin glucose, if you do use it, fair enough, but keep a really good eye on the glucose and you need to make sure you supplement that as needed. And we should say really that we are resuscitating this cat because the approach that we tend to use here is that we resuscitate to a point of needing sedation and or anesthesia to do catheterization, right? Whereas some people, and again, I I think we won't talk about it today because we, we won't have the time, but I know some people are very keen to get in there when the cat's very moribund and try catheterization at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say if you're going to do that, at least give them adequate analgesia, you know, whilst, but I think let's not go into that conversation here because I'm aware that <laughs> we won't have the time. Um, so one thing that we should touch on then is this question about cystocentesis in block cats, and there are some people that practice and teach decompressive cystocentesis very early on as routine management for these cases. Now, this is not something that I think any of us three tend to do. Um, We're all but actually, uh, shaking inter- our head. It's <laughs> interesting to me because uh, one of my friends has just started doing a, an ECC internship in a university in America, you know, and it, uh, they are taught to do decompressive cystocentesis. And I got a message from her going, WTF. <laughs> I, won't, I won't expand on what that means. But I was like, yeah, so, so it's interesting that there are still these differences in opinion on this. But um, I put this question to Nicola, and you know, so she's not here, but she did, um, she did write this. She said, 
normally I don't recommend cysto in the first instance. If the bladder is very distended and you have problems passing a catheter immediately, you can perform cysto. I will normally use an orange or a blue needle, which I think is 23 or 25 gauge, a 20 mil syringe and a three-way tap, but be sure to completely empty the bladder to reduce the likelihood of urine leakage and because it is a wasted opportunity not to. After you've placed the catheter, monitor the cat carefully for signs of your abdomen and perform an ultrasound and abdocentesis if concerned. Um, some people say that removing some of the urine can help to relieve back pressure and allow easier passage of catheter, but I'm not convinced. Uh, normally, following all the tips, um, like using an Alice tissue forceps or hemostats to pull the prepuce, uh, or using an IV catheter and so on, um, it should be sufficient in most cases to achieve catheterization. We haven't really talked in detail about the actual catheterization, but so... We're basically saying we don't really encourage you to do cysto unless it becomes something that you feel like you really have to do, right? Can you, can both of you, <clears throat> either of you, ex sort of expand on why we take the position that we do, I guess? Well, I, thi I think because there are very few cats that we, once um, we've stabilized them that we're not able to pass a urinary catheter. Um, and that may be because we've got a vast array of people with a lot of experience here. And I can definitely say that as a new grad, you know, it was something that I found incredibly stressful was the concept that I was going to get a block cat and I wasn't going to be able to deal with it and I wasn't going to be able to catheterize it. So I know we're in a very fortunate situation here, but I think the majority of cats we are able to catheterize and that's why we just don't do it very often. And um, <clears throat> what about if people say, well, but for all the time that you're spending whilst you resuscitate with fluids and you treat hypokalemia and then you come and do catheterization... I don't know. I've, I've sometimes spent an hour before I've done anything to the cat, right? I don't know. That's a pretty average time, I think. Um, well, you, all this time you've got a blocked bladder and you've got pressure on the bladder and you've got your back pressure on the nephrons. Why don't you just pop a needle in right at the beginning, drain the bladder completely, then you don't need to rush so much. You can do your recess, give the cat a lot more time. So what, what is it about the act of cysto in this cat that, that bothers us? Or do we, you know what I mean? Like, I guess it is the potential for this cat then to require surgery to go in and, and deal with a, a ruptured bladder, which I, I guess most of the time isn't going to happen if we cystoed them, but it, it's a theoretical risk at least um, to do that. Particularly, I think the larger the bladder is, I think Don was sort of describing at the beginning that there can be a great, great variation in terms of exactly how large and turgid this bladder is. And I think if you've got a cat where actually the bladder's maybe tangerine size, but it is still very firm um, and you think this cat has been showing very cl typical clinical signs of being obstructed well cystoing that bladder is probably nowhere near as troublesome as the potential of taking a cat where the bladder feels like it's actually touching the liver um, and you know it's taking up the entirety of the abdomen and the process of putting the needle in there is going to give you some degree of concern at least. So the high pressure is because because like, well being on your on your service you guys cysto oh yeah a lot I of mean cases, right? absolutely so what yeah. is it about these cats that has that's of more concern to you it's it's the pressure in the bladder it's the size of the bladder. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the, the pressure and the, the size. The uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, potentially, um, I think it depends on the chronicity um, of how potentially how long the cat's been obstructed as well. Um, so I guess yeah. I mean we're um, you know I guess what we're saying is that we don't really have like we don't have evidence bases right. No one's done no. a prospective study, etc., etc. Et but for us, we are very successful with how we manage these patients, and so we find it hard to to take a different view on it. I guess, and there are theoretical risks that are greater in cysto in these cases than there are in others. 
Um, does that sound fair? So that's why yeah, we tend to not do it. Yeah, I think so. And I suppose that it's, these are not necessarily healthy bladders per se as well. Yeah. So I suppose they might have more of a propensity to, to, to have a problem. And, and you're right, there is no evidence. And, and I think that uh, I've definitely spoken to, um, uh, to people in practice before, and, and people get quite... Um, uh, sensitive about you know how they unblock cats and things like that, yeah, and, and it, yeah. it just seems that it, the evidence that they have is their own experience and, and not refuting sort of that. And it seems that's what they've done, or that's what they've been told to do, or and they've just always sort of continued that. Um, but I think Nicola's point: if you're going to do it, don't waste the opportunity and, and empty out the bladder. You know, if that's what you want to do, then then that sort of makes sense. But I think that you know we all come from a, a, a place where we see what can go wrong, yeah. and then dealing with the consequences of what can go wrong, you, you might be a bit more. You know, we, we will do it, but we'll make sure the reasons we do it are, are you know, I suppose justified in our own mind. And if complications go wrong, then we'll we'll accept those. Okay, but cool. I think that we we see those. We see the consequences, don't yeah. we? But, but we don't know for sure, pres- proportionately, you know, what percentage we're seeing, right? So it's difficult. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> before we move on, I guess I wanted to just take um, Nicola's point about relieving bag pressure and allowing yeah. easier passage of catheter. I mean, she says she's not so convinced. Again, I think that's partly because of, you know, her experience where we work, all that kind of stuff. I've definitely met practitioners on courses who have said that they perceive a benefit sometimes of decompressing that then allows them to catheterize. And again, we can have an opinion otherwise on that, but I'm just going to leave it out there and we'll move on. Um, so Roseanne, let me ask you something could, else. Could I just interrupt? Sorry, just because I think uh, Roseanne had an excellent point about, you know, when she was... <laughs> take, take that, get it signed. <laughs> no, no, no. She does have excellent points all the time. No, no, no. But an excellent point about, you know, if you're, you know, you're new into this game and uh, and you're worried that you can't unblock a cat or things like that, you put pressure on yourself. And, and I think that part of the problem is it's a, quite a common emergency and people think that they need to be sort of good at it. Well, why don't you give yourself the time to be good at it to make sure that the patient is resuscitated adequately? Mm. But also, you know, that's why I'd probably anaesthetise it because it takes that pressure off. You know, like you're in control of the situation. It's not going to try and kick around. You haven't got your... You know, people around you going, the cat's waking up, what do we do? You, you know, put the, you know, take control of the situation. To resuscitate thoroughly such yeah. that then the cat is a lot safer to be able to be adequately restrained. Absolutely. And, and adequately time. relaxed when yeah. it's under anesthesia. I think one of the biggest yeah. problems can be if taking a inadequately sedated patient and trying to catheterize it when it, just the presence of urethral spasm is going to make your life so much harder. So mm. give yourself the time and space. Yeah, absolutely. get it stable enough that you're able to anaesthetize it, so that you take that pressure off yourself. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Just because it's a common thing doesn't mean it's an easy thing to do. No. Okay, cool, Dom. Thanks. And that seems like a really good place to end part one of this podcast. Um, and so, to the listeners, as always, then do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways. And also, let me know if there are any topics that um, you'd really like a podcast on. So you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk you can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page where there is an album that contains information about the podcast or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod and as I mentioned we will release part 2 of this podcast on block cats um, in a few weeks time so until next time then do take care of yourselves bye bye